So why don't we start in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, our source of communion. Knit us together in love. Come, Holy Spirit, the source of truth. Dispel all lies. Come, Holy Spirit, the source of love. Create in our hearts a great love for each other and renew the face of the earth. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this class is, um, the technical word is called ecclesiology, um, because I like big words, um, but it's a study of the church. And here's the thing, um, if you look at society, um, especially the atheists will say, um, the problem with the world is religion. Or if you look at other people and say, you know what the problem is the world? Is that they don't have religion. I think the problem is not too much religion or no religion. I think the problem is bad religion, <laughs> truth be known. So I don't know if it's a question between faith and not faith. So in scripture, it's a choice between good faith and bad faith. Um, if you notice in scripture, um, there's good religion and bad religion. Not that everybody's perfect. I've got to let you in a secret. Everybody's imperfect. Everybody's broken. So it's not a question of like, well, the perfect people will belong to the right religion. That's not true. It's, there's imperfection everywhere. It's not perfect versus imperfect. Um, it's good religion versus bad religion. And bad religion has no community. Um, it either pushes being a clique or individualism. Uh, it's all about you, you, you. And the ultimate individual, individualism is hell. <laughs> the ultimate lack of community is hell itself. Um, now, here's the odd part. I don't know if you know this, but religion is dying. In the United States alone, um, like the mainline Protestant churches, Methodist, um, Lutheran, etc., they're dying out uh, fairly quickly, actually. Um, now, um, the hard part, Catholics were maintaining our own, but that's really due to the Hispanics. But especially, any church that's tied to, the hi to history, and that means uh, like Lutherans or Episcopalians, um, they're dying out. Here's the odd part. Religion that's tied to ego or nationalism or the gospel prosperity, um, not really a sense of community, but they pop up and go. So religion, oddly enough, not tied to scripture, uh, actually is growing. And you think, well, what religion is not tied to scripture? All these televangelists, uh, Joel Olstein, da-da-da-da-da, um, they're not tied to scripture or community or even worship. Uh, they're the ones who are gaining. And this sounds kind of strange. drives me up the wall when people say, oh, we follow the Bible. Because I don't really find that to be true. The Bible has massive sections on how to worship. Shouldn't we worship as God told us to worship? Or, I don't know, the Gospels make it pretty clear about who Christ is. And yet, you have this really popular thing of the Gospel of Prosperity. Joel Olstein, Jesus is going to make you wealthy. I don't think that's Jesus. That's not following the Bible. Or major sections of the Bible is what it means to be church. Uh, but 
They don't follow the Bible when it comes to that. And the problem is that the world is anti-church. We've become very anti-church. And like, I actually even bought a t-shirt once because I thought it was funny. Um, there's a t-shirt I worked out in. It says, um, it says uh, Jesus, save me from your followers. Um, but <laughs> I meant it as a joke, but you do hear people say, oh, I like Jesus. I just don't like his followers. But the problem is, the church is the body of Christ. It's as crazy as saying, well, I like Americans. Uh, sorry, I like America. I just don't like Americans. Uh, it's one and the same. Jesus literally says he wants to start a church, and that church will outlast. That church will last. Not even the gates of hell will um, uh, overcome it. And he repeats the word church. So Jesus is not anti-church, so how can you say you like Jesus but don't like church since Jesus literally says he wants to start a church? Um, and no offense, I find often... Protestants, church is more like a grocery store. You know, I get my peas here, I get a good deal of chicken at Costco. That's not church. Uh, that's not what Christ commanded. That's not church, that's Frankenstein, where you took different parts. Or the worst, I know I mentioned this, celebrity Christianity. Um, celebrity Christianity, this, just in case you missed that, but there's this book called Celebrity Christianity I read that really opened my eyes, and she works... She's one of these top people working uh, in a publishing company just for religious books. And she said, you know, I know a lot of these writers. They're not very smart. These religious people who love to put out book after book after book, they're not smart, they're not kind, they're not loving, they're not holy, um, they're not even intelligent. They have terrible theology. But the book deal, they make book deals with them, not because it's great theology, because they make money. That's all they really care about. And she said, I know these people, and they're lone rangers, and they don't want you to belong to a church community. They want you to keep buying their next book. You don't need to belong to a community. What you need is my next book. Um, does that make any sense? So like, I'm very anti-celebrity Christianity because it's, it's really isolation and individualism. And the early church would have never understood this modern idea of my personal faith. That's just ridiculous. Um, the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus speaks, he speaks in the plural. He's not speaking to you, Mrs. Sells. He's speaking to us. Church is not something that we created. We didn't create the church. It was created by God. So when people say, oh, I want to start a church, you say, well, that's not in Scripture. You, you know, you're baptized into a pre-existing covenant with God. That's why the, it always says that when somebody's baptized, that they're added to the face of God. Uh, they're grafted onto this tree, St. Paul. We don't create our own church. The church was created by God. Not even bishops and popes. Um, they don't rule the church. They're stewards of the church. It's not their church. Um, if the church is just a gathering of people like us, uh, that's not a creation of God. That's the Tower of Babel. It's not a human construction. Uh, if it's a human construction that I start my own church, that won't last. That is not the image of Christ. And so at Pentecost, that's when we say the church was born. It was born from the Holy Spirit all at the same time, not by one person, Peter, uh, not even by the 12, but by the Holy Spirit. 
Um, that's why, like, I'm coming up with a new logo for St. Pius. So it's going to be a Cairo, but I'm just going to, because I, you know, I have an obnoxious sense of humor. I don't know if you noticed. Um, but it's going to say St. Pius uh, Catholic Church, and it's going to say uh, ST, EST, you know, established 33 AD. <laughs> um, we would say church is not a bunch of individuals. That's Protestantism. You know, you, that phrase, I accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, that never comes up in Scripture. That's actually, no offense, Southern Baptist Creed. Um, it's we. That's the biblical word. So a church uh, started, actually, you would say, with a promise to Abraham and his descendants, uh, never to an individual. And the problem is, in the United States, um, we focus on our small self. The big self is your connection with God and other people, communion with uh, God and other people. That's what we focus on. That's what we celebrate at the Eucharist. But most of the United States, it focuses on the small self, uh, me and Jesus. And so what church best distraught describes the kind of church that Christ created? And I know I mentioned this, the same way in the Bible, the Bible gives morals, the Bible also gives models of what a church should be. And there's nine basic models, I think I'm going to go over eight in the next couple of weeks. Um, and you can't have one of them, you need all of them. Does that make sense? So for you to be a church, you'd need all the models. Now, admittedly, people have primary models and secondary, does that make sense? Um, so you can have a primary model, which your primary model of the church, but you need all eight or nine uh, or something's not right with you. Does that make sense? So it's not either or, it's all. But one of them is most likely dominant. And shouldn't you follow what the Bible says? Shouldn't you worship as the Bible says? So um, if you follow the Bible, shouldn't we be a community, a church, as the Bible says to um, so that's the branch of theology called ecclesiology. Um, now, oddly enough, these parts of the Bible that speak about ecclesiology, they're never mentioned in evangelical church. It's never mentioned by celebrity Christianity. They ignore those parts. So I just, um, since the Gospel of Matthew, one of Jesus' big themes in the Gospel of Matthew, in case you didn't know, is... Community, community, community. Gospel of Luke, hospitality, hospitality, hospitality. Matthew is about the community. So when I say Matthew, I mean Jesus in Matthew. So let me pause. Does that explain what I mean by models of the church? Because Nancy's giving me a strange look. Um, okay, so that's models of the church. So the first model, I'm going to take the most obvious, is the institutional church. Um, now, what I'm going to do is try and describe it, then gives the strengths, then the weaknesses. The institutional church, pretty obvious, it emphasizes the structure and the order of the church. Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It's the hierarchy of the church. But if you notice in Scripture, God always works, God always creates a structure uh, in nature, trees, bushes, flowers, there's always a structure. And the structure is the same. No, I mean, it's just stunning. So 
the structure is the twelve. God always chooses twelve, and one of the twelve leads them, not as ruler or king, but as leader. So you have Moses and the twelve. You have the twelve tribes. You have Jacob and his twelve sons, and he picks Judah, but not the oldest son, to lead. So if you call somebody a Jew, that means somebody from the tribe of Judah. Does that make sense? Technically, not all Jews are Jews. <laughs> they could be from the tribe of Benjamin. Does that make sense? Um, but who is their leader? Judah. Uh, so you always notice this theme of 12, or um, Moses picks a 12. Now, so it's always that. Now, I know I mentioned this before. I'm just going to quickly go over that. The rebellion of Korach in the Bible. Do you remember that? Anybody? Because I've mentioned it before in other classes. How many people know the rebellion of Korak? Honestly, God, yeah, I, I just yell and scream at you people. Um, so the rebellion of Korak is this: is that um, you know God said uh, that He wanted to make the Hebrews um, a, a nation of priests. So Moses is their leader. They have the 12 tribes. But this one guy, Korak, says, now wait a minute, Moses, who are you to be telling us what to do? Uh, we're a kingdom of priests. You know, we all get to decide our own way. Um, and Moses says, oh, yeah, you're right. It does say, God did say kingdom priests. So let me ask God about that. Moses goes to God. God says, oh, no, no, no. I want a structure. Um, yes, you'll all be priests, but I want a structure. So he says, just to prove it, take each of your staffs, I remember the 12 staffs of the 12 commanders, put them outside the meeting tent, and the one that blooms is a leader. So have you ever seen like St. Joseph, and he has a staff that blooms at the top? Um, that's Aaron's rod, that means leadership. Yeah, God wants uh, a hierarchical structure. So... That happens. Korak doesn't follow. Korak still leads this rebellion against Moses. So at this point, God's losing patience. And he says, fine, I tell you what, put his life on the line. If he really believes this, let's put his life on the line. And so um, stand on one side. If you believe that, that God wants a structure, if God doesn't want a structure, stand on the other. So Korak and his people um, stand on one side. Earthquake happens and... Um, they're consumed. Does that make sense? So you can say, well, you have your opinion, I have my opinion. No, you don't. You have the opinion of God. And I know it's a rather dramatic display, but yeah, God does seem, in the Old Testament, want a hierarchy. I don't know if you know this, but the kingdom of David, once again, worked by 12. You had the king, but you also had 12, call them governors. Does that make sense? And one of them has the keys of the kingdom. Um, there's a Hebrew word for it, but it means more like prime minister. So the kingdom works by 12. So when Jesus picks 12 apostles, if you're Jewish, you have so many 12s going on. And 12, the number 12, always means the church. But technically, it means a hierarchical church. Um, so um, Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom to Peter, right? You guys know that passage. I'm not going to go over it. Um, says, uh, Peter, you are rock. His name is uh, Cephas. 
but Jesus changes his name to Peter, which means rock. That was not a common word, uh, name at that time. That was not a name at the time. Uh, Peter's a rock in which the whole house is going to be built. Now, just real quick. Um, uh, sometimes you say, well, when Jesus says, Peter, you're a rock, what he meant is Peter's faith, not Peter. Have you ever heard that? So that doesn't make any sense. Because, one, um, in, the, in the language, there's male and female words to everything. So it doesn't work out in Aramaic, not unless Peter was a transvestite. Um, and it, it works in three, so Jesus blesses Peter, then mentions a rock, then blesses Peter again. He also condemns Peter and says, you are Satan, because Peter says, oh no, that talk about um, death and resurrection. Nobody likes that idea of the cross. But, so there's three conversations, and Peter's a subject of all three conversations. In the middle one, he says, Peter, you are rocking on this rock, and if you say, well, no, it just means faith in general. Really? Because it's Peter. Then you're saying suddenly it's this general nebulous uh, rock, and then it goes back to Peter. If the subject of each sentence is Peter, 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 why would it change in the middle? Does that mean that grammatically, um, contextually, that doesn't really work. I like the interpretation, but the rock is Peter. He changed his name literally to rock. Um, or it says the keys of the kingdom. You know the keys of the kingdom, um, uh, remember in Peter's kingdom, sorry, King David's kingdom, there's a prime minister that literally were given a pair of keys. Um, that's a sign that, of leadership. And then he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on, heaven, on, on earth will be loosed in heaven, and the jaws of death will not prevail against it. Um, which, uh, that phrase binding and loosing, that's actually an official phrase of Judaism when you're given authority to interpret scripture. Not everybody was. Look in the book of um, Leviticus. Priests were allowed. Now, you can come up with your own interpretation. That is allowed. But um, there's got to be somebody who says, no, that's not correct theology. That's not set up by the Catholic Church. That's set up in the book of Leviticus. And then there's other passages where Peter acknowledges as the chief apostle, such as in Luke, when um, Jesus gives Peter the mission to strengthen the other 12. Or, sounds minor, but Christ instructs Peter to pay the taxes for both of them. Um, or Luke 11, Peter asks if a particular teaching was meant for everyone or just him. And then Jesus says a strange line, who then is that faithful, prudent servant whom the master will put in charge of his servants to distribute food at the proper time? And Jesus tells Peter that he's going to be the steward who's being put in charge. And Jesus says there's going to be a steward who is put in charge of the other uh, stewards. And what's a job description? To feed the, the others. And so after the resurrection... Um, the only apostle Jesus instructs to feed his sheep. Do you remember he's on the beach and they say, oh, it's the Lord. Peter jumps in the water and Jesus only commands Peter to pull all the, the net with the fish in it. And then three times um, he says, Peter, do you love me? Uh, feed my sheep. Peter, do you remember that? That only happens to Peter. Which means Peter is the servant who's in charge of the house. Once again, he's the prime minister, not the king. 
the prime minister. Or after the um, uh, resurrection, Christ commissions the, the 12 with his own authority um, to go out and preach to the end of time. Uh, so anyhow, Jesus Christ shares his identity with apostles when he says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Um, or we hear in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts where the apostles with episcopoid bishops get together and make a decision. If you notice in the letters, uh, in the letters in the Bible, they have a hierarchical structure to them. St. Paul says that the house of, of God is built on the apostles with Jesus as a cornerstone. If you notice the, in heaven, there's 12 gates, but there's also 12 stones. And the 12 gates have the name of the apostles over and 12 stones. With, so like it's always 12. It's this hierarchical structure. Um, anyhow, so when we say we are one holy and Catholic apostolic church, the apostolic church is this part. We, um, the hierarchical model is connected with the apostolic side of the church. We as Catholics rely on the apostles. Not just that there are men who died a long time ago, um, but we still have the same structure of their successors, the bishops, um, that we're still part of the original community. So apostolic means that, no, we date clear back to there. So our, the way we worship, our structure, it dates clear back that. And if you notice bishops in the very early church, um, they continued to share this. So Peter and the apostles will say that they laid hands on and made episcopoi. So as the church expands, what the 12 does is um, ordain episcopoi as their successors. Um, now, I don't know if you know this, but then like, if a bishop uh, ordains a priest, he lays hands on him and gives part of the bishop's faculties to this priest. But the laying on of hands is the Holy Spirit Moses does the same thing when he names the 72. So each bishop can trace one of his ordination back to the one of the 12. Each priest can trace his uh, ordination back to one of the 12. I come from James the Lesser, which I kind of like because James the Lesser was short. And <laughs> some people have accused me of being short. I don't know if it's true. But think about this. In Acts, when they expand the church, the church expands, Paul goes over all over the place. Um, and as the church expands, they didn't start their own churches. They expanded the one church. They were kept it apostolic. So early Christians didn't start their own church, but expanded the church that Christ started. Um, so in Acts, you were not even to be a missionary without written permission from the apostles. Because... Um, just to tell you that story, because I, I love that one. There's these um, people that come from uh, Jerusalem to Antioch, and they're disturbing the community because they're saying, oh, if you want to be Christian, you have to do this and this and this and this, and we're the ones who are most orthodox. We really are orthodox. And they're undercutting Paul. So Paul comes with Barnabas and actually others, and he literally has a letter from the apostles saying no, because uh, they're from Jerusalem, right? And Paul is not from Jerusalem. Paul is from Tarsus. And he says, yeah, I'm not from Jerusalem, but I have the letter from the apostles saying that I have 
the authority here, not you. Does that make sense? And it drives me up the wall when people, I, this happens all the time, especially in Coeur d'Alene, where people say, well, you know, I don't know, you, know, you said this, but I read this website. Um, actually, I, I have authority here. Does that mean, uh, I'd say this, when I came here, there's two women who, well, one woman started to gossip about me before I even came here. Um, and it's not like I don't have a personality that's not easy to get along with, but she went, she drove to uh, Holy Apostles to check whether I was Orthodox or not and attended Mass and decided I was not Orthodox. She comes back to St. Pius and starts gossiping that I'm not Orthodox. Now, in all honesty, I don't care. You're crazy. Not, not you, but, well, maybe you. Um, but I don't really care. You know, that I'm busy. But then she spread this rumor that was way over the line. Um, and I am not tolerating that. So I drove to her house. It's a very Irish thing to do. We're going to confront this. So I drove to her house, knocked on the door, and she sees me. And she says, oh, hi. And I said, no, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and I said, you know, you were gossiping about me before I got here. Don't care. But now you cross the line. And um, I'm going to be back here if you repeat this gossip. And she says, well, do you want me to tell you why I don't like you? And I said, no, I, I don't. I'm asking you to be a moral person and stop gossiping. And she says, well, uh, she says, this is why I don't think you're orthodox. And I said, no, no, no. I said, you know, I was ordained by the bishop. I was given a letter to be here. When did you go to seminary? When were you ordained? What letter do you have saying that you have the right to judge me? Does that make any sense? So St. Paul does the same thing. These people come, but they're not ordained. They don't have a letter from the apostles. Saying, so my point being is that you say, well, no, in the early church, you just went out and did whatever you want. Where do you find that? You find the very opposite. Does that make sense? I hate to say it. Apostolic means structure. Or Paul writes to Timothy and Titus on how to be a good bishop and preserve the unity handed down from the apostles. And uh, this sounds kind of strange. Like he'll say to one of them, make them respect your authority. You're a really gentle, kind guy, but people are going to run over you. Does that make any sense? If it's everybody does their own thing, you wouldn't have said that. Or if you look at early Christian writers after that, like Clement and Irenaeus and Ignatius of Antioch, they all agree that our assurance of being united to Christ comes from being united with the bishops that pass down to the twelve. It's not saying that the bishops are holy. It's saying that we have a structure. Like I, I used this example before. I went to go visit a cousin of mine years ago. I love him, but he's in the Navy. Um, he's a Navy commander. He was really high up in the Navy, um, very high up, but... I was taking off the day before his commissioning uh, to come back here, and um, he said, no, 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 stay, stay for the commission. No, it's the Holy Apostles. Stay for the commissioning. It's really nice. He says, you know, it's this transfer of authority. And, you know, I have my ticket. I'm not going to change that. And God bless him. Glad he's successful. But then he married this woman who I consider a pain in the rear end. Um, she loves... Have you ever met these type that loves being an uh, officer's wife? So she, uh, such a joy. Um, 
so she tells the story of um, someone where they moved, because they, they're always moving around, right? They moved to San Diego to the Navy base, and um, I guess the Navy hadn't um, brought their stuff or unpacked the way she wanted, so she says, oh, and yeah, and I got on that phone, and I said, I am the C, the commander's wife, and she says, they hustled up, and I thought, oh, you love being that. You love to, you know what I mean? Um, She's a power person. But anyhow, she's also really anti-Catholic, uh, which I don't know if you know this, I'm a Catholic priest. <laughs> so she always makes these slurs, which, and to be honest, I just let it go because most of the time. But she said this thing about um, their church. So, um, and they always pick a different church, so they ping-pong ball. They don't have a denomination, just whatever big box churches they like. Um, and she made some anti-Catholic thing of um, something to do with uh, their big box church. That this guy came and it's, he's really good and he started this big box. And at that point, because it was anti-Catholic, I decided to go for it. So I said, so Gene, let me get this. Um, you have this commissioning, this handing over authority for the U.S. Navy. What would you do if some civilian came up and said, well, I want to start my own U.S. Navy? Um, aren't we all Americans? Why, why should I follow your authority? You, you know what I mean? If Christ crave, gave authority structure, why, why, why shouldn't we? And bishops were in the church. So every community has this legitimate leadership. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it prevents us. In fact, to be honest, in case you know me, I don't like most bishops. I have to be really honest. But Without bishops, we descend into chaos and anarchy and everybody doing their own thing. So now, how many Christian denominations are there in the world? 400,000 bloomed in the 19th century, and none of them agree with each other. You can say, just follow the Bible. They all follow the Bible, but disagree with what the Bible says. So the New Testament word for a bishop, episcopoi, simply means leader. Now, no human leader is perfect. Um, some in the church have been terrible. But, um, you know, like even Jesus mentions, in the Latin, I like it, where it's a de iuri de uh, facto authority. So do you guys know what that is? Or should I? Um, I don't want to go too... Okay, okay. Um, de iuri authority is the authority like Mother Teresa. No, I take that back. De iuri authority, de, de iuri authority is the authority of one's office. So, um, Mrs. Sales, I'm not picking on you, but she drives like a bat out of hell. Um, and let's say Mrs. Sales is driving home and she is speeding once again through a school zone um, and the policeman pulls her over and says, I'm sorry, Mrs. Sales, I'm going to have to give you a speeding ticket. But she knows that policeman um, is going to come, hits his wife. Is a horrible person. So Mrs. Sales takes that ticket and throws it and throws it right in that policeman's face. What do you think is going to happen to Mrs. Sales? <laughs> um, so he, she didn't respect his de iuri authority. Does that make sense? No. She has no moral obligation to respect his de facto authority because he's a horrible person. 
De jure authority is the authority you have from an office. De facto authority is the authority you have of your own personal integrity. The guy has no integrity, but he has an office. Does that make sense? So in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus mentions that. So like when people say, well, the bishops are terrible. Oh, yeah, Jesus, don't worry, Jesus covered this. Um, and so if the church is Christ's body, and what is the head? that governs the body. And some people will say, well, the head is Christ himself. And that is absolutely true. Of course, Christ is the head of the church. But here's the thing. Christ is also the body of the church. Does that make sense? So if the body is not invisible, if the body of Christ is not invisible, it's there, 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 there. Why would the head be invisible? So yeah, the church is the body of Christ. But both the head and the body are visible. If his body is the visible church, what's the visible head? It's the hierarchy. Not saying that they're great. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So what's the strength and weaknesses of this model of the church? I hate to say it. If you want to say that you're a biblical church, what church has an authority structure from the 12? And 12 is not made up. Like, remember, in heaven, you have the 12 to get into heaven. Um, it's always 12, 12, 12. What started with the 12? What continued with the 12? What Jesus gave, yes, a hierarchical model. What church has a hierarchical model that has lasted the test of time? Not just pop up here and then gone tomorrow. Which one has existed for 2,000 years? Which one has existed um, with a model? So um, we would say, well, that's the Catholic Church. So what's the strengths and weaknesses of this? The strength is an institutional church by Christ. Um, it's started by Christ. The second, and this sounds really strange, whether it's a good or bad bishop, it has some practical consequences. So, true story about this, I think he was Presbyterian, but he could have been Baptist, I kind of forget, but this one guy um, get, was preaching and it upset the congregation. So the elders of the congregation fired him. But he protested, and he, I'm 90% sure it's Presbyterian. He went to the Presbyterian leader as a protest. And the Presbyterian leader said, well, I am the head in this region, but um, there's nothing I can do. They fired you. And he says, well, what I said was orthodox, and tried to prove it. it was, they just didn't like what he said, but it was orthodox. And he says, shouldn't, shouldn't there be some authority I can appeal to you? And his leader said, oh, that kind of authority hasn't existed since the Catholic Church. So he's authority, but he has no power. If they don't like what you preach, they fire you. Does that make sense? But, like, so you can say that about most Protestant churches. They really don't have an authority structure. But what happens when there's no institutional oversight? And you can kind of think, like, and I have real problems with the Catholic bishops, I have to be honest but it prevents us from falling into discord uh, where nothing means, everything means anything. And these pop-up churches, this sounds kind of strange. Do you know in every pop-up church, the pastor is the Pope. He has all the authority. If you didn't know that whole Mars Hill thing, he had, alto he had m far more power than a, a Catholic priest or a bishop does. He ruled those people. Um, at least with an institutional structure, there's rules, a little bit of a checks and balance system. And so bishops may not 
and I mean, I have a low standard of many bishops, and they are to preserve the dogma of the church, not their own agenda, but just the dogma, and they preserve the unity of the church. And I hate to say it, they do. Without a structure, things fall apart. So that's the practical reason. The third is unity. Um, and here's my problem. A lot of Protestant churches were very anti-institutional, and they reaped what they sold. Do you know how many times I've heard, a thousand times, that some minister gets up and he talks against the Catholic Church? Now, I have nothing really against Protestants. We're just doing models. But they always preach against the Catholic Church. And somebody asked me once, why are they always preaching against the Catholic Church? Because we're the big dog. Does that mean, like, we're the largest church in human history. The longest institution, human institution is the Catholic Church. Largest denomination. They're just a little tiny thing. So, um, anyhow, uh, many of them are very anti-institutional. I don't need institutional religion. But in some sense, that kind of anti-institutionalism that Protestants preached is what they're sowing now. Because think about this. All the mainline Protestant churches are now dying off. And they're declining. And what's popping up is just these box churches that last for a couple years, but there's nothing. Um, so the big box churches just stay as long as there's a charismatic preacher, but they have no long-term intergenerational ties. It's not like this is going to be your grandmother's church because that only stays as long as the priests are. So um, I'd say most of these big box churches, the preacher's charismatic, brings all these people in, and most people only stay five years, but it, it all ends when the preacher ends. Does that make sense? So it's completely tied to the, his charism. And I mentioned this, when I was at St. Mark's, we won this award of one of the top 100 places in the United States to worship. It was done by the Lilly Foundation. We're one of the top tens. So we went to this conference, and this just really opened my eyes. We went to this conference, just like, and it was Catholic or Protestant. And they're all nice guys, but um, just like, what do the top 10 churches have to say about what makes for a great church? And this one evangelical guy had a huge big box church. He said, you know, he said, you Catholics are so lucky because you've been doing the same thing for 2,000 years. And he said, in my place, every week it has to be more of a light show and more fireworks and more. And he said, you know, I, I'm exhausted. I'm tap dancing as fast as I can. He says, I just want to build up my bank account so I can retire. Oh, that sounds beautiful. You, like... So that whole church will fall apart the moment he leaves. The institutionalism of the Catholic Church, I know it's mocked by saying, I don't believe in organized religion. So you believe in unorganized religion? Unorganized religion dies off quickly. So that's the three gifts from it. The weaknesses is power. That the institutional church, if that's your, there's a famous cardinal, Avery Dulles, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And he warned priests, unfortunately, priests and people didn't listen. And he said, if your main model of church is institutional, you'll abuse other people out of power. So he said, we, you do need the institutional model, but it should never be your main image of church. And I have to say, 
That is very true. There's this pretty famous story about two priests in Idaho. One's elderly, one's younger than I am. But the elderly one just has a heart of love. And we're discussing a problem. And at one point, the elderly priest says to the, I guess middle-aged, even though I like to consider myself middle-aged, um, even though technically I'm not, but he says to this middle-aged one who his, his view of the church is very hierarchical, right? Power, power, power. So he says, I, I, gotta, I gotta ask you, here, answer this question. When you were ordained, did Christ give you, uh, were you ordained for power or service? And he says, well, power. Um, and he says, that's the source of the controversy. You're abusing your people. So um, one of the weaknesses of this model is it's all about power. And yeah, he kind of was abusing his people. The second, if you overemphasize the institutional church, church becomes a clique of triumphalism, our group versus theirs. Um, and it doesn't allow us to look us look inside the evil that we commit inside the church. Um, and so you do ministry out of paranoia of who's to blame, or you don't do any ministry. So I, I love this quote. It's not going to make sense, but um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, brilliant saint from the Middle Ages, um, great spiritual, head of the monastery, right? So very, he's very institutional, but he himself spoke out against those who, you, who become a bishop or a priest for power. Because if it's all about that, you'll abuse other people. So he's not anti-institutional. He's against the theology of power. And he said, I like this line. The quote is, I am black and beautiful. Now, he doesn't mean Afro-American. He means the church. He's not, it's not being about uh, racial. It's ecclesial. He openly admits that the church has members who have sinned and that there is darkness in the church and there's darkness in him. But the Holy Spirit, the light of the Holy Spirit shines through the church um, and helps heal broken humanity. But if you become an abbot or a priest or a bishop for power, the darkness will grow. Um, so if you say, well, I want a church without sinners. Well, you know the joke. Nobody would belong to that church, would they? Um, uh, so that's another problem. Another problem is the church becomes bureaucratic. Do you know what I mean? Like your theology of right and wrong is just bureaucratic. Um, that's a huge issue. Sounds that morality is just following the bureaucracy. That's why it cannot be your number one model. So there's this, another crazy woman. Um, do you remember COVID? It was a couple of years ago. <laughs> and... So here's the thing, like, I loved, in fact, somebody called me the other day, I loved COVID. I know it sounds kind of strange, but ministry became unique. And my parish, we had these, I love, you would, a park, we had parking lot masses. And um, we got a sound system, we got an FM projector. So you could sit in your car and listen to the homily. And we'd have Eucharistic ministers with masks and, and, um, Clubs, you could receive communion, but it's just in the hand, and we'd go from car to car. You could get out of your car and get a lawn chair and sit and 
the weather's great, but you can't, you have to always maintain distance. And it was such a huge parking lot. It was, it was wonderful. It was fun. So huge amounts of people were coming, right? Um, but you always get the complaints about, well, I want communion on the tongue. Well, it's COVID. You're not going to get communion on the tongue or, you know, can't have any contact. Um, and this one woman who, her father, her very bureaucratic. So a, a year after COVID, she's going through our Facebook page because she wants to find something to complain about. And it was how I did confirmation. That at confirmation, so we did anoint, not on masses, but we did anointings and the whole thing, like if we were doing an uh, anointing, we'd get, you can get these long like Q-tips and I could dip the Q-tip in the holy oil and make the sign of the cross on you without, does that make any sense? So there was no touching, but you were, um, so for confirmation, the bishop didn't want to do confirmation because of COVID, so he allowed all local pastors to do confirmation, but this ruling came out, you're not allowed to touch them. Does that make sense? No problem, I could do with that. So she's going through um, the video and sees that during confirmation I was masked and I didn't touch them. So she files a complaint against the diocese because the rubrics are you're supposed to touch them for confirmation, except the diocese itself them. Actually, Rome, you're not allowed to touch. So, like, this sounds kind of strange. She couldn't understand why that lawsuit didn't continue because, um, rubrically, I wasn't following those rules. Does that make sense? Despite the fact that it was an international global pandemic and I was following the rules. But the problem with um, the hierarchical model, I'm not saying it's wrong, but if that's all you have, that if that's your lead model of the church, your morality will be bureaucratic. Um, another problem is bureaucracy leads to a caste system. So um, what I mean by a caste system is, you know this, so this happened in um, San Francisco, was it San Francisco or Berkeley, one of the dioceses. So this priest who's 70 years old, um, priests don't make a lot of money. I don't know if you know that, but even in retirement, you don't make a lot of money. And so he asks, it's Berkeley, he raised his hand at this conference with the bishop, bishops and priests, and he says, you know, Bishop, um, our diocese doesn't have a retirement home for priests. And he says, the moment I retire, I would not be able to afford any rent in the Bay Area. Um, why don't we have, and the bishop lives in a mansion, um, why don't we have a retirement center where we can get lower rent for retired priests? You know what the bishop's response was? Get a friend. Um, he lives in a mansion, but retired priests can't afford um, to live, live there. So, like, that's what I mean by a caste system. Um, it, it's not scripture, but it's just how it is how it is. Um, and the last one is uh, the institutional model. I think it's necessary, but it's not about holiness. The model has this weakness. It does, it does have some holiness into it, but it's only holy if your model of the bureaucracy is for service. If it's for power, it becomes something dangerous. Does that make sense? So um, pluses and weaknesses, all I'm saying is that one model, if you call yourself a, a biblical church, it should be hierarchical and apostolic. Does that make sense? 
Okay, so that's one. I'm going to take another model, but now I'm going to do the opposite. Because <laughs> I think it's good to do kind of opposites. Does that make sense? So the opposite of the bureaucratic, or sorry, the hierarchical model is the mystical communion. That church is a mystical communion. 100% believe that as well. So the mystical body of Christ cannot be identified with any human institution, any political party, or any national identity. The thing that identifies the church in this model is the Holy Spirit. The church is instituted by Christ in order to manifest the mystical body of Christ. The church is the mystical body of Christ, and yet this is going to shock you. It's not limited to the Catholic denomination. So it should shock you that uh, it sounds kind of strange. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, you keep getting these figures who are holy, but they're not part of the chosen people. Job, Job is, in the book of Job, Job said, God says he's the holiest human on earth. But the shocking part is he's not Jewish. His three friends are Jewish, but they're not holy at all. Um, and this sounds kind of strange. Look at Proverbs, the Holy Spirit welcomes everyone. Um, or another great example is uh, the book of uh, Jonah. Jonah is a super, super religious guy, but he's the most disgusting person ever. He's a bigot. Um, and he always likes to say, uh, I am committed to God. And then he does the very opposite of what God asks. And the real twist is, every time there's a pagan, the pagans in the Jonah story turn out to be holy. The pagans in the Jonah story actually do the will of God, even though they don't know God. They know God, but they're pagans. Or St. Paul, it sounds really strange. You know, he gets this letter. Um, in one of the letters, uh, St. Paul says, uh, they ask Paul, says, well, what about those people that never know the name Christ? And St. Paul's, I'm dumbing it down, says, oh, they know Christ. They just don't know the name Christ. Does that make sense? So they still, in their hearts, they can say yes to the Holy Spirit. So when people say, well, what about, you know, those people never know Christ, you know, the Canadians or the pygmies. But the Holy Spirit moves through all people. They can say yes or no as well. And the mystical communion means, ah, there's more people in the church than in the denomination. Or... Um, Oh, I was going to use one more scripture example. Oh, Cornelius. Uh, Peter, St. Peter is a little bit of a bigot, right? And he's, invite, uh, he's invited to Cornelius' house. He gets these visions from God, doesn't really understand it. It's pretty obvious. God loves everybody. Doesn't really understand it. Uh, so then he gets a vision. You're going to get an invitation to dinner. Go to dinner. Well, then there's this uh, Roman officer, Cornelius, who's pagan, but he's incredibly holy. And the angel Gabriel goes to him and tells him to invite Peter. So he says men's, men, men out to Peter. Peter comes back, but when he sees the house, oh gosh, it's a Gentile's house. Jews are not allowed to eat with Gentiles. So Peter wants nothing to do with this. He says, I'm, no, I, I can't do this. Then he sees the Holy Spirit. This is bizarre. Think how bizarre it is. The Holy Spirit falls down upon Cornelius and his family. And then Peter gets it. 
Cornelius and his family are part of the church and they don't know it. So Cornelius baptizes them. They receive the Holy Spirit before baptism. And the other 12 are shocked by this and they say, Peter, get back to Jerusalem. What have you done? And he says, no, the same thing that happened at Pentecost happened to Cornelius and his family. They were part of the church and didn't know it. I had to baptize them. Does that make sense? So mystical communion is, holy cow, uh, the boundaries, the Holy Spirit blows a little bit farther than the boundaries of the church. And then you have that same story in the Old Testament, such as Moses. Now, Moses starts his hierarchical um, church, right? There's Moses and there's 70 elders from God, hierarchical. But when Moses ordains them and the Holy Spirit comes down, the Holy Spirit once again blows a little bit farther and falls on Edad and Medad who weren't in the tent. They're not part of the hierarchical system. And somebody complains to Moses, and Moses says, oh, that all the people were. So yes, you can have a hierarchical system. Moses promoted that. And admit that the Holy Spirit tends to do what it wants to do. God's like that. Um, so um, uh, anyhow, so what makes us a church, the DNA that makes us a church, is the Holy Spirit. So the mystical communion is that that idea of the vine and the branches, um, it's Christ, that run, the Holy Spirit, that, that runs through us, that makes us one in heart and mind. Um, so big part of St. Paul's theology of the church. Um, you know, St. Paul is always one, 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 one equals church. So one spirit, one baptism, one cup that we share, one bread, uh, we are all one. So there's all these huge, huge, if you think about it, biblical images of one, one, oneness that the Holy Spirit brings. So St. Paul says there is neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, we are all one. Um, or in Matthew, you know, people get upset with this. Um, Jesus breaks the bread and says there's 5,000 men, not including women and children. And some modern people wrongly get their nose out of bed saying, what do you mean there's no men? What do you mean not including men and women? You're looking at it from the wrong angle. From the Jewish side, uh, oh, sorry, from the Greek side, um, not including men and women, that would have been shocking. What do you mean? Men and women ate together as equals? That's, that's why the line is shocking. Does that make sense? Um, Gentiles didn't work by that, but Christ does. It's a mystical communion. And so in baptism, in the Eucharist, um, it celebrates this mystical communion. Christ gives us his own body and blood so that we can be mystically united together. There's all these saints that had like, one of my favorite is, um, yeah, I, I tell the same stories because I have the same top 500 saints. Uh, this one mystic, Carol Hauslander, who, um, you've heard the story, right? Love it. Carol Hauslander, she's this artist, kind of comes back to the church, becomes holy, but um, she's in England. This is World War II. Um, she's in England, and workers are getting off the subway, the train, and she suddenly sees, has this mystical vision that whoever she sees, she sees the presence of Christ in them. And then the mystical vision expanded farther. Whoever she sees, she sees how, like Gina, she can see Christ in Gina, but then through Gina, she can see how Christ is in Gina's daughter and son-in-law, and like 
who Gina is connected to. Does that make sense? Then it expands a third time. She could see not only Christ and Paul and how Paul is connected to Matthew and Christ is in Matthew, but how Paula is connected to her father. What was your father's name? Daddy? Uh, what is it? Paul? Uh, who she was connected to. Like, it, it, I, I love that image. Or Thomas Merton standing on the corner of 4th and Elm where he has this dream before the Holy Spirit, this little girl who says, oh, he says, oh, in this dream he says, oh, you're, you're a sweet little girl, what's your name? And she says, oh, my name is Proverbs, Holy Spirit. She says, but most people ignore me. Next day, he has to go into Lexington. He's on the corner of Wal Walnut and Forth, and suddenly, wherever he looks, he sees the Holy Spirit burning in other people. And he says, it's like waking from a dream. Uh, I forget the line, but it's like waking up from a dream that oh, I was the one who was asleep, that all these people walking by are burning as bright as the sun and the Holy Spirit burning him in this and said, we're all connected. After that, his theology takes a shift. He becomes like Martin Luther King's spiritual director. He's very concerned about social justice because those children who are suffering, those blacks are being persecuted. They're one with us. You know, they are me and I am them. Does that make sense? So this monk, he says, it takes years of prayer, but that's where the Holy Spirit, that we are all mystically united together. Um, so, uh, remember, one of the marks of the church is one. What do we mean, one? Um, what it means, one, is uh, the Holy Spirit in us makes us one. We can be, there can be unity and diversity. One doesn't mean that we all agree and never argue. It means um, unity that can't be destroyed by diversity nor does diversity destroy unity. Differences cannot divide us because we share one source. That's the Holy Spirit. So when, like, St. Cyprian says, outside the church there is no salvation, outside the Catholic church there is no salvation, he doesn't mean denominationally, he means the oneness of the mystical communion. Or another saint put it this way, the church is without beginning or end because... Uh, the eternal church is the Trinity. I love that. Our church is union with the Trinity. So we would say there's not a difference between um, the church on earth and the church of heaven. We're all one. Um, and the deeper you go in prayer in the Eucharist, the deeper you go into other people's lives. So our communion is not externals. It's mystical. Um, and so, like, when it says the Catholic Church is universal, I'll get into that later, that um, there's one church. So um, anyhow, I'm starting to run out of time, so I have like 12 more pages to go. Um, so I'm not going to cover everything. But what I like is, of these two models, mystical communion and hierarchical, actually like when we celebrate Mass, that's a perfect example that the two opposites are also united. Does that make sense? So remember, there's more than one, but what I'm going to ask you is, what is, of these two, what is your primary one? Hierarchical or mystical communion? Please say mystical communion. Because <laughs> number one can never be hierarchical. Or it can, but 
It just leads to abuse. But does that make sense, what I mean by models of the church? Questions? Objections? Mrs. Paula? How are the what? Oh, the models of the church? It comes from the Bible. The Bible has different models of church. And once you see it, you see it. Like it, it doesn't, li- it lists all that stuff, but you can put them into categories and it's like, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's mystical communion. But the problem is, if you only have one, let's say your only definition of church is mystical communion, I'd say that's incomplete. It's beautiful, but it's not complete. Does that make sense? So, like, I've given homilies on the mystical communion of, uh, right? I don't, won't call it that because it, then I have to explain and afterwards, somebody will say, well, how come you didn't mention Peter has keys to the kingdom? I wasn't going over all the models. Does that make any sense? So, uh, but we'd say, if you want to say that you're a biblical church, you should have both. Oh, yeah, sorry, Doug. I have bad eyesight. I Okay, let me. Oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Now, I don't know, but I say yes, because there is this little thing of uh, spiritual communion. So it's not an official position of the Catholic Church, but it's, I do it all the time. I take communion for other people who are homebound. They can't make it, so when I go to Mass, I hold them in my heart. So I go to, or does that make any sense? At St. At Holy Apostles, when we were doing Mass, some people couldn't go to Mass because they were so compromised, they were scared. So we would always read this prayer of spiritual communion for those who are just attending online. That we'll receive communion for you and through you. For, through us, for you. Does that make sense? So, yeah. I'm, and I'm not saying everybody should go to communion. I'm definitely against that. But I am for spiritual communion. But, yeah. With everybody. I know, I don't, like, just as a species, we're not meant to be, uh, that leads to solipsistic living. It's about me, me, me. It's not about the oneness of God and the oneness of the church. It's this narcissistic, solipsistic, me, me, me. I choose my truth. No, it's the truth. Right. 
devil means divider. I'm just a little uncomfortable when you mention devil, you point to Gail. Please stop doing that. <laughs> all right, well, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the treats as well. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.